Hello, friends. Welcome back to How to Talk to Weirdos, where we discuss communication with people who are different than you. And since we're all unique, that's pretty much everyone. When someone has a different style of communication, they can seem like a weirdo. And if they seem that way to you, you probably seem that way to them. As I like to say, everyone's kind of a weirdo. We're going to talk about some of the assumptions that we make and other pitfalls of communication so that we can all improve. There's a lot to cover, so let's get started. Welcome back to How to Talk to Weirdos. I have Gary Simmons with us today. He is a neurosurgeon. He's a professor. He's an author and a speaker. Gary, welcome. Well, thanks so much for having me, Jeremy. That's uh, truly my pleasure. And what a wide range of things you do. It's pretty exciting that, you know, people who are surgeons can also write fiction novels. So it's pretty... Uh, pretty entertaining that you're able to do all those sorts of things. Well, thanks. I um, I, I made it easy because I uh, put down the knife a, a few years ago now for a series of reasons. So I had a lot of time to kill. Nice. And it's good that you're not doing surgery now that you're using the word kill. <laughs> yeah, we, uh, we probably use language like that a little too freely. <laughs> Speaking of language, one of the reasons why I'm excited to have you here is that surgeons and doctors in general are not necessarily known for being the best communicators, especially the more specialized they get. It seems that the less able they're able to communicate with regular humans. Um, can you tell me more about that? And has that been an issue in, in your experience? Yeah, it, it's a major issue. And, uh, I definitely have gone on my high horse about it many times through the years. I think it, I think it actually starts maybe nowadays, way back in high school, but uh, certainly in the college years of pre, of pre med, all the pre meds who uh, have to jump through so many darn hoops uh, just to get into medical school. So just I, I think while their brains are developing, while their personalities are developing as adults, all of a sudden they're stuck in libraries and stuck in labs and they're not they're not interacting with normal people. They're not interacting with anybody uh, except maybe some of us idiot professors. Right. Uh, so um, I, I think at a really critical time in life when they really should be interacting with all sorts of people and learning the nuances of communication and uh, learning the dance of interacting with uh, people of all stripes. Uh, we're isolating them. And then then you get to med school and you're bombarded uh, with, I mean, you just, you it's nonstop learning, but really part and parcel to what you're learning is a whole new language. I mean, the whole thing of medicine. I, I used to give tours of our medical school when I was there, and I, that was the first thing I would tell the prospective students is, if you look on medicine as uh, learning a new language, it all becomes much easier. But we're learning that so that we can talk to each other in the most efficient of terms. So if I say to another duck, uh, this patient has a STEMI, I don't even have to say uh, ST elevation myocardial infarction. I just say they're having a STEMI. They know exactly what I mean and a whole s series of information downloads in their heads. But that does nothing for a person who I'm, for a patient or a family member who I'm speaking to. 
Uh, and so what happens is we're so used to speaking in that language that if we don't stop and translate it, we're doing the patients a huge disservice. And and it is a busy world. It is a busy life. And so it's just so much easier for a lot of docs to just spew the technical language uh, and and leave the poor patients and their families in the dust. And what we really work on is trying to get people to slow it down, to interpret, to educate through their speech, to bring people as up, up as much as possible to what they're getting at. Is that something that's now taught in schools or that is on the job figuring it out how to make that translation back and forth? Yeah, I'm afraid it's still a lot of OJT. I, I think med schools are, uh, you know, various med schools are doing a better job at at least uh, beginning to address it. Uh, and the one that I teach at uh, Virginia Tech Carillion, it uh, it really does work with uh, the the students a lot. They they do mock patients and actually have them speaking to patients in front of the instructors and all. Um, but it, it was never a part of the real educational process. In my residency, I ran a residency uh, there at Virginia Tech Carillion as well. And uh, we, we did mock patients all the time and, and worked on uh, people's communication skills because I think it's, it's one of the most important things that we do as a physician. Yes, you want your surgeon to be competent and, and good at what they do, but it, you know, I always said we can teach almost anybody how to do the operation. It's all the other stuff that matters. It's so interesting. And my background's in engineering. And what I found is the way engineers are trained actually makes it harder for them to communicate because when they're going through school, they are forced to tell you every step and all of the background information, or you don't get full credit on the exam. And then you get into the real world and no one wants the whole backstory. People want what the answer is. They don't want to know how to build a watch. They just want to know the time. So their training actually makes it more difficult for them to communicate the way most people like to. For anybody kind of in a, a high demand, high technical uh, world, we, this same phenomena potentially is going to happen. And I've, I've, you know, heard tell often of people in other other industries uh, where some leader in the field will come in and then just lose everybody within a few minutes of some presentation or some discussion. And then, so that is the case for surgeons. And then on top of that, you also are having very emotionally charged conversations with people from time to time, which is a whole nother set of skills that is rarely taught. How often does that come up where you have to talk to people about, you know, something that's going to change their life? It's a great question. Uh, in, in my field, uh, particularly in the type of practices that I was in, it is uh, stunningly common. So um, I've always worked in these big medical centers with trauma centers and the helicopters coming in. You had to remind yourself that every one of them, and they were coming in all the time, every single one of them held somebody whose life had just been absolutely turned upside down uh, through illness, through injury, through whatever. Um, and so when you go to talk to 
uh, patient uh, and or their family, particularly in my, you know, in my world, it w was often their families because the patient was compromised one way or the other in coma or, you know, badly injured and stuff. But um, when you would go talk to the families, you had to you had to understand that right up front that their whole world has just been turned totally upside down and on you know on a given night uh we usually saw anywhere from i don't know 15 to 25 emergency consults every night i mean you were talking to that many families no matter what no matter whether you had to operate or not and often in one night you would tell several families that their their family member was dead or dying or in coma or paralyzed or has a new brain tumor or something like that. So it was, like I said, stunningly frequent. I, I can't even imagine the amount of stress that must bring on. And how did you learn to communicate in that type of situation? Or what are some some things you did learn that you can maybe share with people who are having maybe not quite that challenging of a conversation, but an emotionally charged one? Yeah, it's a great question. And uh, I think we don't all have to tell family members that, you know, somebody's paralyzed, but we all do deal with stressful situations and, you know, life, life, uh, moves on and it it's not always smooth for sure and I think the better we are at, at that sort of communication uh, the better it is for everybody and I, I think I think one of the best pieces of advice uh, is to not dive in <laughs> meaning uh, you recognize you have to have this conversation don't walk into it two seconds later actually pull yourself aside somewhere. And in the hospital, I would tell the residents, you know, if it means going and stepping into a closet, just go somewhere with your own thoughts. Think about your opening salvo at the very least. How am I going to open this conversation? What, what are my goals? Uh, go in armed with some goals for the conversation and don't make them too numerous because there's only so much you're going to ac accomplish in one in one conversation. If you can even give yourself a minute of role playing, you know, even by yourself, hear the words come out of your own mouth. I think that is one of the more stunning things in a conversation that that's, you know, that's uh, fraught is hearing your own words in space. And they just kind of hang there and, you, and you're going, oh, my gosh, can I pull that back? Uh, so, you know, if you can even say a few things out loud in that closet and hear what it what it sounds like, what it feels like uh, to release them, uh, I think that goes a huge way rather than just going in and shooting from the hip and, you know, hoping that hoping that it works. Obviously, the more you do it, probably the more facile you become to it. If if you're evaluating it all the time and thinking about what you've said, um, but yeah, that that would be the you know kind of the first step. And you know, from there, there's there are many different components to it. But obviously, you know, honesty is huge. Uh, people, it's it's interesting, but in fraught situations. I think we tend to like to tiptoe. Uh, 
mm-hmm. and 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 you know oh i don't want to i don't want to actually say what i really mean or what i really need to say because it's going to hurt or because they're going to get upset or because i'm going to get upset but i think we tend to tiptoe and all of a sudden we start shading the reality uh and maybe not get across the key points and yet on the other hand, we don't want to come in with a sledgehammer and just start swinging away. So we got to have a, a level of empathy and compassion uh, before we launch into our, our deep honesty. Uh, I also think a huge part, um, which we're terrible at, and I'm terrible at to you right now, for example, I'm just rambling on, uh, uh, but this is one of my more favorite topics. <laughs> but um, uh, I think we have to listen. And mm-hmm. I would open up most of these conversations by introducing myself, establishing kind of who I am and what my bona fides are here because they need that. But I, I would then say, please, can you tell me what you understand about, you know, your loved one's condition? What what do you know is going on? And just stop and shut your mouth and, and hear them. Uh, and you can gain so much. One you know what they know, you know, you, you establish what they know, but you also start to establish what's their level of sophistication. And I don't mean that in a pejorative sense. I mean, what do they actually know about the medical world, for example, in medicine and how, how am I going to have to adjust my conversation so that they can best understand it? Um, and listen, you know, even to their emotional set points at this point, are they angry? Are they terrified? Are they optimistic? Are they, you know, get a read on their emotional status and you can get so much again, just by shutting your mouth for a little while and listening. And, and at least in my world, we're always feeling hurried. So you're kind of like, oh, geez, I got to get this, this over with, because I got to go talk to the next family. Um, but sometimes you just have to say, no, I, you know, it's got to unwind itself. And if it takes time, it's going to take time. Those would be a few of my opening, uh, recommendations. Yeah, those are great. And in going back to just stopping and preparing yourself, that's something that is useful for all of us. So many times if there's a heated situation and you just go right into it. It's not going to go well. If you can just step back and kind of gather yourself, it goes such a long way. And then you talked about actually saying things out loud and hearing it. That goes such a long way, too. It's amazing what a change in tone of voice does to the message and the way it's received. I know that in when I was in sales, one thing that I would always tell people is don't flinch when you say the price. If you kind of verbally flinch when you say it's $10,000, all of a sudden that looks really, really expensive. And if you just say it's $10,000, then people take it for what it is. So catching yourself and making sure that you have the, the appropriate tone of voice really does go a long way. So what am I buying for $10,000 here, Jeremy? What would you like? <laughs> Just don't flinch. Nope, no flinch. <laughs> no, I think it's I, I think it's a great point, and body language means a lot. So, again, in my world, and I think uh, you adjust to your situation, right? Everything is going to have certain patterns. So, in my world, for example, again, you feel this sense of 
of hurry. It's uh, there's never enough time. And so I see so many of my colleagues who give uh, body language that they don't have the time to 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 be here very long. So they'll literally, you know, maybe be standing there leaning towards the door or slowly backing out. Or I've, I've often seen them with one foot out the door, all with this body language saying, I got to get out of here. I can't. And, and I always advise people with, with, you know, the really hard conversations. You got to go sit down. You got to sit down in front of the people, with the people and and show that you are not trying to get out of there as fast as possible. Uh, so I, you know, I am sure there are parallels in the various types of industries where you adapt to whatever the conventions are that that clearly signals I am here for you for this. And I we are taking this very seriously. And I'm, you know, I'm here until we come to some sort of solution on it. Yeah, that kind of body language and positioning are just so important. I'll always tell people to sit on the same side or at 90 degree angle rather than facing mm -hmm. because it just feels so much more uh, combative, you know, depending on what the topic is. If you are face to face or, or you know, if you're standing and they're sitting, holy moly, what a message that that gives. So that's all good stuff. So can you, can we switch gears for a moment and tell me a little bit about the book that you've recently written? Ah, well, yeah, sure. Thank you. Um, so I, I guess it'll be a longer story than you want, maybe. But um, through the last 10, 15 years, I became very interested in uh, burnout because I see so much of it in healthcare. Uh, and it's just, it's ubiquitous. And if you look at the data, it's it's very supportive. And they tell us that 50% of all physicians are burning out to one degree or another. And I I believe it to one degree or another. Uh, and got really interested and uh, was lucky enough to, to work with a world expert on physician burnout. His name's Wayne Sotil. So anyway, we wrote three books on burnout in healthcare. And it it's... I think it, it's a good service and I think it, they're good books and all that, but um, but they're still nonfiction. And all you do in medicine is write nonfiction, uh, you know, for on one, day, one level or another. Uh, your patient reports, you, things you write for the, you know, your national organizations and your journals and stuff like that. And it really starts to feel like a book report. So anyway, I, I dove into the fiction world, but that burnout world um, crawled into my fictional attempt. So it's basically, it's about a brain surgeon of all people um, who is overworked, overtaxed, probably burning out, uh, who begins to see things. He thinks they're hallucinations initially and then convinces himself, himself that they're ghosts. Uh, and then things kind of take off from there. Fun. It's quite a transition going from being a surgeon to a fiction author. Yeah, I guess. Uh, I, I, probably we, we weave a lot of fiction about ourselves <laughs> throughout our careers. So maybe it's not such a big leap. Absolutely. So on the topic of burnout, it's, you know, I'm sure it's very common in, with physicians and in the medical field, but it's pretty common elsewhere also are there any 
tips or advice you have from your studies that can apply to us? Oh yeah, whole books. Uh, but um, I think A, it is absolutely not uh, the purview of people in medicine. In other words, I mean, I, I think you're right. It's, it's all over the place. I, I, I think our society makes us quite prone to it. It's we're, you know, we're just moving at the speed of light. We're multitasked like crazy. Burnout is burnout is people are particularly susceptible who are bright, energized, hard pushing, dri driven, who are in high demand, low uh, control situations. And that describes many of our lives, right? That uh, we're, we're put into that situation. So um, I, I do think it's ubiquitous. Um, it, it plays out, uh, you know, technically it plays out as a, a sense of emotional exhaustion and loss of empathy and loss of sense of accomplishment. Uh, and people can kind of drown in that, just lose all sense of energy to, to get out there and, and do what their normal days demand, let alone the higher demand stuff. So I'm um, sure. Uh, and so uh, we have a you know list of dozens and dozens of strategies uh, to work at to try to help people um, pull themselves out of burnout and to build what we we call their resilience, and that is the ability to face all these challenges and not you know be emptied out. So building resilience is the key, um, and uh, I just give you kind of, again, the opening salvo. The opening salvo is to grant oneself permission to practice what we call self-compassion. And that's, it's a little bit of psychobabble, meaning to actually sit down periodically and think about oneself. We're in this, you know, mile a minute world. And if we ever say to ourselves, geez, I wonder how this makes me feel, we kind of go, oh, shut up, get your job done. Uh, stop, you know, stop being a baby. Uh, or we fill ourselves with guilt because we should be focusing on other things. But periodically, without guilt, we have to sit down and say, where am I? How am I feeling? How am I doing? What brings me, uh, what brings me, pleasure and joy, what is dragging me down? What is sucking the energy right out of me? Uh, what, you know, what relationships are, are bringing me value? What is going on, you know, in various entities of my life that are working well? What aren't working so well? How do, how do I respond to these stressors that seem to be bringing me down? Are my responses good for me or are my responses adding fuel to the fire. So in other words, periodically, even if we have to sit down with a piece of paper and write pieces out, taking an inventory of ourselves, because we would argue you can't really address burnout. You can't really address yourself without understanding yourself. So part one is coming to understand yourself. Part to, which is a work in progress. You can't just do it once and, you know, oh, I have it all solved. And part two is then granting yourself permission to actually do something about it. Uh, and so I'll give you one of 70 or 80 examples that we give. But the examples that we use for strategies that one can practice are developed through looking at, 
going kind of what they call positive psychology, not studying the people who are having trouble, but studying the people who are not burning out. What are they mm -hmm. doing that they're not burning out? So here's one example. And we, we call it the 90-10 rule. It probably should be called the 99.99 versus 0 0.001 rule. But, but what we mean is um, if you look at your world and look at your stressors, it's very easy to quickly identify that many of them are external. It's mm -hmm. your work schedule. It's, you know, this this evil boss. It's the impossible tasks that uh, you're required in the me in the medical world. It's the electronic medical record. Everybody wants to, like, you know, uh, take it to the woodshed and smash it to pieces. Um, <laughs> you know what? One thing or after after another, after another, after another, it's this external world leaning on us and and you know sucking every last bit of energy out of us um and so what what we say is okay let's let's grant ourselves that the grand grand majority is external and it would be nice to get that fixed and we should try to get it fixed as systems and all but for us personally is there any piece of this that we can that we can lay claim to and work on improving so that we can say, I'm not just completely a victim of circumstances. I have some control over some piece of the puzzle and I'm gonna make that tiny piece better. Because A, it gives us a little bit of that sense of control back. B, is it makes that little piece better. C, is it may start spreading, it may start having a ripples in a pond effect that, you know, okay, my mini work micro environment is me and three other people. What if I actually just start being nice to those three people and complimenting them about their work every day? We may find that they all of a sudden start blossoming and working better and, you know, improving our micro environment as well. So that would be one example, Jeremy. I like it. And it's always amazing how often we tell ourselves that we have to do a certain thing. And if you stop and look, it's like there are very few things that you have to do. Um, you know, if you're a surgeon, then yeah, you, you should be doing that surgery. Um, but a lot of times we say, oh, I have to get this thing done. And if you stop and think about it, no, I don't. Like, what's the worst that's going to happen? The world will continue to move on. So I think that's a big one. And then you talked about you know, sometimes just taking any small step just mm. feels so invigorating. Even if that step didn't really result in anything, just the fact of taking that step usually goes a long way. So that's great stuff. All right, we are starting to run out of time, so I'm going to wrap up with the three questions I like to ask everyone. First one is part A and B. What is a place you've traveled to and loved and a place that you haven't been yet but want to go? Uh, I, I do love going to Britain. Uh, my mother was Scottish and uh, I lived there for a while as a boy. And I love going way out into the hinterlands and traipsing around these places. It's always raining, by the way, but uh, traipsing around these places where uh, ancient 
humans put up rows of stones and circles of stones and stuff like that. We also like going to the oldest pub in town uh, and just thinking about how people have been, you know, coming into this place for 600 years, mm -hmm. 700 years. Uh, and, and, you know, I don't know. It just puts you in touch with your humanity. I've always wanted to go um, to one of, you know, a place like Auschwitz, uh, one of the one of the concentration camp areas, just, I don't know, to pay my respects, I guess. There are not a lot of 700-year-old pubs in America. <laughs> no, not a lot. Um, great. And the second question is, who do you find to be a great communicator? And it can be a public figure or just someone in your personal life. Yeah, I mean, I, I know... A lot. I could I could give you an amalgam more. I mean, I, if you want to go historical, I, I still love uh, I love hearing Churchill's speeches. Uh, to me, Shakespeare. If you're communicating and writing, Shakespeare was probably the best. He he kind of plumbed every every human emotion and and motivation back several hundred years ago. I don't think we've changed at all. But you know, I was lucky enough to. Uh, practice, train and practice in the army for a while. And uh, I, I, in my work there, I had so many colleagues who came out of West Point. I don't know what it is about West Point. I guess it's all their leadership training, but you want to talk great communicators. Just, I, 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 and I think, you know, it goes to one of the lessons about good communication that it just felt like they were so straightforward that, you know, a lie could never leave their lips. So that honesty angle, it, 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 it's so pure, it would always make me feel inferior. <laughs> but but uh, yeah, I think, you know, they they I guess they just commanded respect by, you know, their their honesty and um, I, I guess professionalism and competence. And then the final question is what's one piece of communication advice that we can all benefit from? Well, we hit, we hit a major one and then maybe I'll add some spice, but I think the listening angle is huge. I think we are, even when we are hearing somebody, we're already formulating what we're going to say in our own minds. So, you know, that's all going on. And our brains aren't very good at focusing on two things at once. So yeah. I might argue, you know, that we actually make ourselves listen and truly listen. Don't worry about what you're going to say until you've, you've listened and processed it. I also think in many settings, not all, because some it's inappropriate, but I think in many settings, a little dash of humor goes a huge way. I think it, it humanizes you, it connects you uh, with the people. And, and so I, I, I think it's really powerful. Uh, you want it to be self-deprecating, not, not focused on them, obviously. Sometimes you can have a mutual enemy, like I, when I would be with the, the patients, sometimes I had to be typing while I'm talking to them. And uh, I would say, hey, you know, sorry, sorry I'm doing this, but if I don't feed this, you know, monster, it will eat us both alive or something like that. And they seem to appreciate that. But for the most part, I think a little dose of self-deprecating humor goes a huge way. What are your pieces, Jeremy? I, if you're going to ask me, I get 
to answer it back or ask it back at you. Sure. So listening is a big one. Talk about it a lot on this podcast. And as you said, listening all the way to the end and not trying to come up with what your your answer is going to be before you've gotten all the way to the end. And another thing that I'll say is you may not agree with what the person is saying, but you have to accept that it's their truth. So even if you disagree, but you accept that it is their truth, then it puts you on a, on a much more stable ground for the communication that you have going forward. I like that. I like that a lot. Uh, there's an interesting, just a sidelight to that one, uh, reference the novel. Uh, they told me, because I've I read all these books about it and all, but the, I don't know who they is even, but somebody once said, and then it gets repeated a lot, but once you release the novel, it's not yours anymore. That, mm. you know, you, no matter what you thought these people were doing or what their motivations were, whoever reads it is going to put it into their own world, their own universe. And it's actually, it's delightful when you talk to them about it and hear all these various interpretations and all. And sometimes I'm like, yeah, that's much better than mine. Yeah, we'll go, we'll go with that one. Where are your travel to places? Oh, you know, I would love to go to Australia. And I lived in Italy for a year. And when I went to Finland, I fell in love with it. I was staying at a just tiny hostel surrounded by forest and lakes and you would think that you were in the middle of nowhere, but 20-minute bus ride, you're in Helsinki. It was really wow. cool. So it's a lot better in summer than it is in winter, but I was there in winter, <laughs> too, and I liked it still. So Yeah, I can bet. I can bet. Well, I'm heading to southern Switzerland in May with, with Virginia Tech, with a class I teach with Virginia Tech. But it's real close to Como. Yeah, nice. Uh, Lake Como, and so it's delightful out there. Wonderful. Well, have fun out there. Gary, how can people find out more about you and or reach out to you? Uh, very easy. I thank you for asking. I have uh, my own website, which is which is probably not all that professional. Sorry, but it's, uh, you know, it's the best I can do. Um, but uh, it's uh, under my name, Gary R. Simmons, S-I-M-O-N-D-S. So it's Gary R. Simmons dot com. So that's wonderful. That makes it pretty easy. And yeah, I love I, connecting with people and I, you know, I love having these sort of conversations. I think the more all of us do this, the better we understand each other and the better we function, you know, all together. Perfect. Gary, it has been a pleasure. I'm going to put uh, in the show notes a link to your website as well so that people can find it you. easier. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it is. It is truly my pleasure. Thanks for listening to another episode of How to Talk to Weirdos. Hopefully you found it both interesting and useful. If either of those things is true, please share. Do you have a friend or a coworker who could benefit from listening? Maybe a family member you're going to be spending the holidays with? Please send them a link to your favorite episode and see if your conversations don't get just a little bit easier. I would really appreciate it. Thank you so much and have a great week.